0: Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about one of our episode's sponsors. Recently, I've been using the new Vasa Blah in-ear headphones by Studio, and I have to tell you these are some of the best headphones I've ever used. They're sleek, stylish, and very comfortable. They feature cutting-edge Bluetooth 4.1 technology with multi-pairing capabilities. They last a long time on a single charge, too. Vasa Blah boasts up to 8 hours of unlimited playtime with up to 10 days on standby. On top of that, they sound really great, too. The Vasabla in-ear headphones feature the simple, elegant Scandinavian design that Studio is known for. Studio is a company that wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones, not just as tech, but as a fashionable lifestyle accessory. Right now, they're offering free worldwide shipping. And if you place your order in December before Christmas, they'll send it to you in a complimentary gift box. Listeners to The Conspirators can get an additional 15% off any purchase right now by clicking on the link in the show notes and using the discount code conspirator at checkout. Thanks again, and now back to my show. The little girl wouldn't stop crying. She was a mystery to the other children at the tiny schoolhouse in the settlement at Pueblo de San Jose. Nancy Graves seemed so like them at first. Just another bubbly and giggling ten-year-old kid. One minute she'd be playing with them on the schoolyard, but then, without warning, all of a sudden she'd just burst into tears. None of the other children knew what to make of it. They knew Nancy had seen some hardship out on the long, dusty trail, but then again, who hadn't? All the children in the American settlement had come from somewhere back east, California in 1847 was still far too new for any of them to have been born there. All the children had been uprooted with their parents and taken on the long journey from parts far and wide, looking for new opportunities in this vast land of plenty. So what made this one little girl's journey so different that it caused her to burst into tears at the drop of a hat? And why is it that sometimes her eyes seem so old, so distant? What had Nancy seen to give her that vacant stare that always preceded the tears? It was a look that, quite frankly, frightened the other children and made them back silently away from her. There were rumors, of course. There were always rumors. But most of that was just schoolyard gossip. Something about a bunch of families stuck in the snow and about some bad things that happened to them out there. Then there were the other rumors, the darker ones, The unspeakable ones. Over time, friends would comfort young Nancy and try to get her to talk about what troubled her so. And eventually she would open up to them. Only what she told them was so terrible, so horrific, they all wished they'd never asked her in the first place. What happened to young Nancy Graves and the other members of the Donner Party during the worst winter in the history of the Sierra Nevadas has become the stuff of legend. It's a story of incredible tragedy, of survival, and of one of the most horrific events in American history. I'm Nate Hale, and if you're at all squeamish, you might want to turn this off now, because this episode is going to get really dark. And this is The Conspirators. During the 1840s, the eastern United States began to feel a little too crowded for some people. Financial panic, outbreaks of cholera and malaria, and that unquenchable desire for some people to keep moving forward drove them out west. It was that sort of pioneer spirit that caused people to pack up their lives and seek their fortunes in the vast, uncharted land west of the Mississippi. By the early 1840s, fewer than 20,000 people inhabited the western territories. But within only a decade, more than a half a million people would hitch up their wagons and head out to greener pastures in Oregon, Texas, and California. Our story begins with an ambitious 27-year-old attorney from Mount Vernon, Ohio, named Lansford W. Hastings. In 1842, Hastings headed out to California and was overwhelmed by all the riches to be had there. It was a place where a farmer didn't have to worry about harsh winters. Where the climate stayed temperate all year round, a green and fertile land that remained largely unspoiled by human hands. This truly was the land of opportunity. He had come through Oregon and then to California with the express goal of making way for the army of settlers he envisioned following in his footsteps. It didn't matter that at the time Oregon was still jointly claimed by Great Britain, and California was still Mexican territory. The irony shouldn't be lost on anyone that back then Hastings and others like him were illegal immigrants into Mexican territory. But none of that mattered to Hastings. He had big dreams of one day forming his own militia and of seizing California from Mexico then installing himself as governor of the new California Republic. But first things first, Hastings was going to need his army. In 1845, Hastings published The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. It was his own homespun travel guide and subtle invitation for ambitious travelers like himself to join his cause and help stage a coup against the Mexicans. In his guidebook, Hastings gave people instructions on everything he thought they'd need in order to make the journey west. He even included a handy shortcut that he claimed could shave hundreds of miles off the 2,500-mile cross-country trek. There was just one tiny problem. Hastings had never actually seen this shortcut he wrote about for himself. Although he remained absolutely certain it was there. On April 16, 1846, a caravan of nine brand new covered wagons headed out of Springfield, Illinois bound for California. They were led by 62-year-old farmer George Donner and his brother Jacob, each of whom brought along their wives and families. George Donner had already uprooted his family five times and had made enough money that he didn't need to move anymore. But the siren call of California was too strong. This was to be his family's last big move before finally settling down for good. Also leading the group was a successful 46-year-old businessman named James Frazier Reed. He brought with him his wife Margaret, who suffered from terrible migraine headaches and hoped the better climate would help alleviate them. They brought with them their four children, Virginia, Maddie, James, and young Thomas, as well as Margaret's elderly mother, Sarah Keyes. Sarah was sick and frail with consumption, but if her daughter left, then she'd be all alone, so she came along. In total, there were 32 men, women, and children in the first group who left Springfield, although as the journey progressed, there would be others who would join the caravan. Among the original group who left Springfield were the Reeds' two hired servants and seven men who answered George's ad to drive the big wagons. Interesting fact, one person who briefly considered tagging along with the group and heading out to California on the ill-fated expedition was a young Illinois lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. He might have gone, too, when his wife Mary had a bad feeling about the trip and talked him out of it. James Reed outfitted his family with an oversized two-story wagon that came complete with an iron stove, spring-cushioned seats, and bunks for sleeping on the upper level. The thing was so heavy it took eight oxen to pull it. Twelve-year-old Virginia Reed dubbed it their palace car. The same day the caravan headed west out of Springfield, so did Lansford Hastings, head east in the company of a seasoned mountain man named James Clyman, who himself had traveled extensively throughout the west from the 1820s to the 1850s. Hastings planned on taking the shortcut he was certain existed, and planned on meeting up with the caravan of emigrants from Springfield along the way. Kleiman argued with Hastings that his proposed path would be much more difficult than the traditional route, but Hastings would hear none of it. On May 11, 1846, the Donner Party reached Independence, Kansas to rest and resupply. It had been difficult going up until then. Heavy rains had turned the roads into thick mud, and the men often found themselves having to dismount the wagons and help the oxen drag them through the muck. Independence, Kansas, was considered the last jumping-off point for immigrants before hitting the fabled Oregon and California trails. In the meantime, word reached them of increasing violence out west. On May 13th, President James K. Polk signed a bill declaring a state of war between the U.S. and Mexico. Polk had wanted this war practically since the day he took office. Although the war was ostensibly a border clash between U.S. troops and the newly independent Republic of Texas, Polk had always seen California as this big glittering prize that would be a big win for his presidency. He once tried to buy California from Mexico, but having failed at that, he set his sights on seizing it by force. Heavy rains continued to make the Donner Party's journey difficult. On May 29th, Margaret Reed's mother, Sarah Keys, died along the way and had to be buried in a field beneath a tree. It was the best they could do under the circumstances. They had a schedule to keep, and every delay put them perilously closer to being caught in the mountains out west during the winter, something none of them wanted to happen. By June 27th, they were already a week behind schedule. They stopped in Fort Laramie, one of the last remaining outposts before they had to begin crossing the Rocky Mountains. There, they ran into James Clyman, the mountain man who had previously traveled part of the way with Lansford Hastings. Clyman warned James Reed not to follow Hastings' proposed shortcut. But Reed was stubborn, and he believed in Hastings. More importantly, he wanted desperately to believe in the shorter path that wrapped around the southern edge of the Great Salt Lake that Hastings had proposed. According to Hastings' book, the new route would shave as much as 350 to 400 miles off their long journey. On July 17th, a mail carrier caught up with the Donner Party on their way to the Continental Divide. He delivered to them a letter from Lansford Hastings urging them to proceed west along his route. Up ahead, he said, were smooth plains with ample supplies of fresh water. By now, they were more than a thousand miles from Independence, Kansas. By July 20th, the group had really reached the point of no return. It was at this point that part of the caravan decided to heed James Clyman's warnings, and break off from the rest of the Donner party to follow the tried-and-true route to California. But twenty wagons, including the Reeds and the Donners, turned toward Fort Bridger, and the entrance to Hastings' cutoff. It was at this point that the new, smaller group chose a captain to lead them. James Reed expected it would be him, but most everyone considered him too aristocratic for their tastes. So they chose the more down-to-earth George Donner instead. Fort Bridger was really not much more than a cabin owned by another experienced mountain man named James Bridger. He was also well acquainted with Lansford Hastings. In fact, Hastings had stopped at Fort Bridger just a month earlier, although Reed and the others hoped to meet their benefactor who urged them on. Hastings was already long gone by the time they got there. According to Bridger, Hastings had told him he planned on charting the route ahead in preparation for the Donner Party. Bridger himself had a reputation as the king of the mountain men, So when he insisted that the road ahead would be an easy journey for the Donner Party from here on out, they believed him. But it wasn't easy going, not by a long shot. Even though they followed the wagon tracks left by Lansford Hastings, everything came to an abrupt halt on August 6th, when they found a letter left behind by Hastings telling them the road they were on was impassable. Hastings promised them he'd meet up with them to show them a better way but five days passed without Hastings ever arriving. So James Reed decided to lead them himself into the Great Basin looking for a better route. By now they were only moving at a snail's pace of two miles a day. The terrain ahead was rough going every inch of the way. It was covered in thick undergrowth, and they discovered the canyons ahead were choked with cottonwoods and aspens. It took the men six days to chop their way out of the canyon, For a time, they even thought they might be forced to abandon their wagons rather than drag them up the mountain. But instead, they double-teamed them and slowly got through. It took them an entire month to reach the Great Salt Lake, even though they'd expected it to only take them a week. During this time, they suffered another casualty when a young man from their group named Luke Halloran also died of consumption. By this time, many members of the party were beginning to openly curse Lansford Hastings, but there was simply no turning back now. Along the way they found another note Hastings left behind instructing them they had only two days of hard driving ahead of them across the desert, and after that they'd find drinkable water. But once again, this proved to be untrue. The path ahead was a glittering salt plain. It was foolish of the Donner Party to try to cross it, but they did so anyway. The heat of the day brought the ground's moisture to the surface, turning the earth into a spongy mess where sometimes the wagon wheels would sink down more than two feet. At night, the temperatures plunged below freezing. On the third day, the reeds' water ran out. Then some of their oxen bolted and could not be found. The reeds were forced to abandon the palace wagon and had to walk on foot to find the Donners for help. The family might have frozen to death at night were it not for their dogs they huddled with for warmth. It took the Donner party five days to cross the 80-mile desert that Lansford Hastings had assured them was half as wide. As the days wore on, provisions ran low and tempers were flaring all around. The name Lansford Hastings became a dirty word among the group. It turned out that Hastings Shortcut was actually 125 miles longer than the regular route. Even in early September, they could see the snow that was already settling on the tops of the mountains in the distance. By now, they had lost half their animals, and they knew they were in big trouble. William McCutcheon and Charles Stanton agreed to ride ahead to California in order to find help. Around this time, the other emigrants who had broken away from the Donner Party in order to take the traditional route were already setting foot in Sutter's Fort, California. By October 5th, the Donner Party was forced to double-team their remaining animals once again in order to drag the wagons up a series of sandy hills. One of the drivers, named John Snyder, was getting increasingly furious at the oxen and began whipping them viciously. James Reed stepped in to stop him, but then a fight broke out between the men. At one point, James Reed pulled out his hunting knife and drove it into Snyder's chest, killing him instantly. Although Reed tried arguing he had done so in self-defense, many members of the party didn't see it that way. Some called him a murderer and said he should be hanged on the spot. But Margaret Reed begged for her husband's life and instead the group collectively decided to banish him instead. James Reed was forced to ride away, leaving his wife and children behind. For a while, James Reed would leave letters for his family, but eventually, even those stopped. Many of the remaining able-bodied emigrants limped along on a foot from there in order to spare the exhausted oxen. At one point, one of the older members of their party broke down and claimed he couldn't walk anymore, so they left him behind, alone, in the wilderness. They never saw him again. They did occasionally find some rare help along the way. They got some helpful advice from a couple of Paiute Indians they encountered, although that night a fire broke out in some brush. All hands turned out to fight the blaze, including the two Indians. But when everyone arose next morning, both the Indians and several of their oxen were gone. There was nothing the party could do but move on. On October 16th, the group reached the Truckee River. They paused for a short time to rest the remaining cattle, but the settlers knew they couldn't stay long if they were going to avoid the snow. On October 19th, they finally had a stroke of good luck when Charles Stanton showed up with a team of mules, some food, and a pair of Miwok Indian guides named Luis and Salvador. Although things briefly looked up for them after this, the Donner party ran into another setback when the axle on George Donner's wagon broke. Then George gashed his hand fixing it, forcing everyone else to push on without the Donners. The group slowly straggled their way into Truckee Meadows. Although the weather was clear when the settlers reached the foothills of the Truckee Mountains, as had been the case throughout much of this leg of the journey, the Donner party did not travel as one single unit. Infighting and a pervasive attitude of self-preservation among individual families often kept them separated from one another. Although they were, for the most part, all headed in the same direction, Many members of the Donner Party traveled by spreading out and keeping their distance from one another. As members of the group approached the Sierras, it became apparent they had lost their race against the snow. The first storm of the season had come early, on October 16th, and it wouldn't be the last. Between mid-October through early April of 1847, no less than ten major snowstorms hit the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Each storm brought massive snowfalls. It was, by a cruel twist of fate, the worst winter ever recorded in the Sierra Nevadas. Before we continue, I wanted to remind you about today's sponsor, Studio. I've been using Studio's new in-ear headphones, the Vasa Blah, and I think they're terrific. They're stylish, comfortable, and they sound fantastic. If you order from Studio in December, they'll send your order to you in a complimentary gift box with free shipping on top of that. Listeners to The Conspirators can even get 15% off their order now by using the coupon code CONSPIRATOR at checkout. After clicking on the link, I'll provide in the show notes. Thanks again, and now, back to the show. There was already an inch of snow on the ground by the time the first members of the Donner Party reached Truckee Lake on October 30th. By the following morning, one inch of snow had turned into several feet of fresh powder. The higher the group climbed, the deeper the snow got. The mules kept tripping and falling. The two Indian guides could no longer find the trail ahead. Mothers were becoming too tired to carry their children. Stanton and one of the Indian guides reached the summit of the mountain, but were forced to turn back when the storm became too fierce. By the following morning, the mountain pass was completely blocked with snow. To add insult to injury, they were only 140 miles away from the safety of Sutter's Fort. But with the snow falling as heavy as it was, they might as well have been back in Springfield. At the start of the snow, there were 81 people trapped next to the frozen Truckee Lake, a body of water that years later would be rechristened Donner Lake. There were 25 men, 15 women, and 41 children, including 6 nursing infants. Now, let me be clear. Things went really badly for the group after that. They had faced a lot of hardship up until that point, but nothing compared to what was still to come throughout that long, terrible winter. The group broke up into six individual camps after that. Some of them built makeshift log cabins or lean-tos for shelter. One family known as the Breen's settled into a tiny shanty that some previous settlers had already built near the lake. George and Tamsin Donner and their four children were forced to hunker down in a couple of tents six miles away near Alder Lake. By just after Thanksgiving that year, there was at least five feet of snow on the ground, and it seemed like it was never going to let up. At that point, hunger wasn't yet a major issue for them. They still had some meat, and they were able to hunt as well. Basic sanitation would prove to be a problem, with heavy snow making it difficult to walk anywhere. It became difficult for people to empty their chamber pots, and their crude shelters all smelled like outhouses. Many of the children cried at night as lice burrowed beneath their skin. But as the days wore on, food began to run out. They hunted as much as they could, but game would eventually become scarce throughout the area. They would soon be forced to eat their remaining animals. First, they ate what few cattle and horses they had left, even though this would leave them unable to travel on except by foot. Then they were forced to kill and eat their dogs, and eventually were left with scavenging what nourishment they could get from the few field mice they were able to catch. They picked the marrow clean from the bones, and learned that they could make an edible, gelatinous paste by boiling the hides. They began mixing what little meat they had left with anything they could chew on, including leaves, twigs, and pine cones. Anything to stave off the maddening hunger that began to overwhelm them. Meanwhile, miles away, a skeletally thin James Fraser reed stumbled into Sutter's Fort, begging for someone to help save his wife and children but at the time most of the able-bodied men were already down south fighting in the Mexican-American War, and help was in short supply. Reed was actually forced to sign a paper agreeing to volunteer to go fight in the Mexican War before anyone would agree to help him. On December 6th, one of the hired hands died of malnutrition. Jacob Donner was another early casualty of the winter of 1846. He had never been a particularly hardy fellow, and now the elements and the lack of proper nutrition finally killed him. His brother George didn't seem like he had long for this world either. The cut in his hand had grown infected. They tried to treat it as best they could, but you could see the infection crawling up his arm with each passing day. By mid-December, 15 of the strongest remaining members of the group made a last-ditch effort to go find some help. Franklin Graves crafted crude snowshoes for them, and together they set off for the mountain summit. They took with them six days' worth of starvation rations. Sometime later, a historian would dub their little band The Forlorn Hope. It took them two grueling days to reach the summit. Within six days, their remaining rations ran out. After that, Charles Stanton told the others he was too blind and weak to go any further, and that they should go on without him. The last time the other members of The Forlorn Hope saw him, Stanton was sitting in the snow smoking his pipe. Six months later, A group traveling east would find his skeleton stuck in a tree stump near where he had last been seen. Days stretched on with no food. It became apparent that they were lost. One of the members of the Forlorn Hope, Franklin Graves, the one who had actually made the snowshoes for the group, would begin showing symptoms of hypothermia. The Graves family suffered greatly throughout the ordeal, at least as much as anyone did. Franklin's wife, Elizabeth Cooper, their daughter Elizabeth, and their son, Franklin Ward Jr., all died that winter. I'll tell you right now that one of their daughters, a ten-year-old girl named Nancy Graves, did survive through that winter and would eventually find her way to an American settlement in California. But the knowledge of what happened to the corpses of her parents and siblings would haunt her forever. One night, as the remaining members of the Forlorn Hope huddled around a fire with their stomachs grumbling furiously, Someone finally made the suggestion that had been on all their minds for some time, but no one had dared broach. They should draw lots for one of them to become the ultimate sacrifice so that the rest of them might live. They did it, and Patrick Dolan drew the losing straw. But even after that, no one had the stomach to kill him. Not then, anyway. That same night the wind kicked up so fiercely it extinguished their fire. They huddled together under blankets and prayed to God for mercy. By morning, two more of them were dead. A cattle herder named Antonio and Franklin Graves. Patrick Dolan wasn't doing too well either. He'd completely lost his mind. He stripped off his clothes and rushed towards the woods. They tried to restrain him, but eventually he collapsed and died too. William Eddy managed to get the fire going again. There wasn't much discussion about what would happen next. Someone cut the flesh from Patrick Dolan's arm, which they then cooked over the fire, and ate. The only members of the group who refused to eat human flesh were William Eddy and the two Indians, Luis and Salvador. Although eventually the hunger pangs would grow too great for William as well, and he would partake of human flesh too. The other ten members of the group carefully cut up the bodies of the dead. Then they wrapped up and labeled the meat so that no one would accidentally eat their own kin. There were still some lines they refused to cross. Keep in mind, the members of the Donner Party were not the first or the last groups of people who ever grew desperate enough to resort to starvation cannibalism. Archaeologists have found evidence of Neanderthals eating other Neanderthals when food was scarce. Evidence has also shown that during a particularly brutal winter of 1609... Members of the Jamestown colony were also driven to consume their dead in order to survive. The members of the Donner Party rationalized that breaking this final taboo was their only choice. It was either eat the dead or die themselves. Many of them were already half as insane with hunger as Patrick Dolan had been. Two sisters, Sarah Foster and Harriet Pike, tried to coax their 13-year-old brother, Lemuel Murphy, into eating some of Patrick Dolan's flesh. The boy's condition had been rapidly declining over the past few days and everyone could see he was headed in the same direction as Patrick Dolan. At one point Lemuel spotted a mouse scurrying from its winter hole and he snatched it up and stuffed it into his mouth while it was still wriggling and alive. As delirium set in he began thrashing about and crying that someone was trying to steal his bone. Then he attempted to bite anyone who came near him. He would eventually die out there in that place they all called the Camp of Death. They butchered Lemuel's body for food the following day. After the meat from Lemuel, Patrick, Dolan, and the other dead party members began to run out, it was William Foster who proposed murdering Luis and Salvador for food. After all, he said, they were just Indians. William Eddy strongly objected. Luis and Salvador had come to the group's aid when no one else would, He ended up warning the Indians who bolted the first chance they got, but they didn't get far. Foster found them days later, collapsed and exhausted in the snow. He shot both of them in the head. Then their bodies were cut up and divided among the group. Officially, Luis and Salvador were the only two members of the group who were actually murdered during the Donner Party's ordeal that winter. Although, as you'll hear, that may not have been entirely true. Back by the lake, a growing number of people had died— but at least up until now, cannibalism had not yet been considered among that portion of the Donner Party. After two weeks went by with no word from the forlorn hope, they'd all pretty much given up on ever seeing them again. On January 10, 1847, the United States Marines took Los Angeles from Mexico. With the fighting mostly over, James Reed rushed back north in order to gather money and a group of men willing to go looking for his family. He'd already made two desperate attempts to reach them before then. That had been part of his bargain before he would go off to fight the Mexicans. But both search parties had failed to get close and he had been forced to turn back each time. After the remaining seven members of the Forlorn Hope butchered and ate their two Miwok guides, Luis and Salvador, they would eventually make their way through the wilderness to a Miwok village. The Miwoks they encountered ran away from them at first, thinking these haggard creatures stumbling out of the snow were spirits. They would eventually feed them a meager ration of acorn bread and a thin soup made from nuts. Over the next several days, the Indians guided them from village to village where they cared for and fed them at each stop. Eventually, William Eddy felt strong enough to hobble his way in the direction of Johnson's Ranch, 15 miles away, looking for more help. William Eddy and the Indians he was traveling with would find help at the cabin of a recent immigrant named Matthew Ritchie. Words spread among the locals about the group of survivors. The forlorn Hope had been hiking through the wilderness for 33 days. Of the 15 original members, only two men and five women survived. Help wouldn't arrive for the remaining survivors by the lake until February 19th, and even then, it wasn't nearly enough. On that day, the first relief party crossed the summit and headed for the area where they believed the settlers were living. But when they got there, they were dumbfounded when they couldn't find anyone at first. They called out to them, and that's when they were startled by the sight of a woman standing straight up out of the snow, followed by a few others. Everyone was skeletally thin and looked like the risen dead. The first woman who spoke to them asked if they were from California, or had they come from heaven. The members of the first relief party were horrified to discover the bodies of twelve immigrants laid out across the camp, covered with quilts. At that time, there were forty-eight survivors— although many of them were overcome with the same hungry delirium that preceded the death of Patrick Dolan. By that point, Margaret Reed had managed to keep all her children alive, as had Peggy Breen. But the rescuers were only able to take 24 of them out of there. They would have to leave the rest behind and send back more help for the others. Eight-year-old Patty Reed volunteered to stay by the lake to care for her three-year-old brother, Thomas, who was too young and weak to travel. Before Margaret Reed left with her other two children, Virginia and James, Patty told her, Well, Ma, if you never see me again, do the best that you can. As the first relief party led their group of survivors up the mountain, they would eventually run into the second relief party on their way back down it. Among the members of that party was James Fraser Reed. When Margaret heard her vo- husband's voice calling out to her, she nearly fainted right there on the spot. They embraced, and she told him that Patty and Thomas were still alive back in the camp. He said he would find them, no matter what. Although the group down at the lake had managed to avoid resorting to cannibalism for a long time, they couldn't hold out forever. When James Reed reached the lake, he saw things that would haunt him forever. Fleshless bones and half eaten bodies were scattered throughout the camp. Reed would later write that the survivors he encountered looked more like demons than humans. At one point, he stumbled across the body of a woman with the flesh stripped from both her arms. Her breasts had been cut off, and her stomach cavity was open where her heart and other soft organs had been removed. There was a sobbing child of around 18 months still clinging to the corpse, crying, Mama, Mama. Like the first relief party... Reed's group could only take a handful of the survivors with them. This included his two remaining children. It would take months for two more rescue expeditions to make it all the way to the campsite because of the continuing harsh weather. A final rescue party arrived on April 17, 1847. The camp was completely silent. Everywhere they looked, they found butchered human remains. At George Donner's tent, they found George's split-open skull, empty of its brain. He had died of the infection to his injured hand over the course of the winter. His wife, Tamsin, had been given the chance to leave with one of the earlier rescue parties, only she chose to stay and care for her husband. Tamsin never made it out of there either. The searchers followed a set of footprints from the Donner's tent to the last remaining survivor, a 32-year-old German immigrant named Louis Kiesberg. They found him in a rather compromising position as well. He was now living in the shanty once occupied by the Breen's, and he was currently engaged in the act of cooking and eating Tamsin Donner's lungs and liver in a pot. There was some question as to just how Tamsin had died. Kiesberg claimed she died of natural causes, although many people believe he might have strangled her to death, partially because the last time anyone saw Tamsin, she had still been in relatively good health. The other problem with Kiesberg's story was that even though he was currently cooking Tamson's flesh, there were pieces of venison in one corner of the shack he had ignored in favor of eating the woman. Lewis Kiesberg had always been regarded as a shady character throughout the long journey west, but now he was seen as a living ghoul, and a murderous one to boot. It didn't help that he was found carrying $225 worth of gold stolen from the Donners, which he claimed Tamson had given him before her death with instructions to pass it on to her surviving children. For the remainder of his life, Kiesberg would be dogged by vicious rumors that he was a monster. One story written about him claimed that when the members of the last relief party found him in that tiny shanty, he had hung a dead child on a peg on the wall with plans to devour him later. Kiesberg would eventually sue the members of the relief party that found him for slandering his good name. The jury sided in his favor, although he was only awarded $1. Of the 87 people in the Donner Party, 41 of them died that winter. Two-thirds of the women and children managed to survive, although two-thirds of the men died. Miraculously, all the members of the Reed and Breen families survived. Newspapers printed many stories that embellished the tales of cannibalism in the mountains. This is part of the reason why we should take at least some of the stories about Lewis Kiesberg and others like him with a grain of salt. Kiesberg had suffered as much as anyone. He, too, lost a daughter, Ada, and another child born out on the trail to starvation. In fact, one story goes that as the relief party led Lewis away from the charnel house that he'd been living in, he spotted something yellow sticking up out of the snow. He brushed away the snow, only to discover the blue face of his daughter, Ada, staring back at him. Rumors forever dogged Giesberg that he sometimes bragged that he liked the taste of human meat better than anything, and that the taste of Tamsin Donner's liver was the sweetest bite he'd ever eaten. He died in a hospital for the poor and destitute in 1895. In 1849, gold was discovered in Sutter's Creek, and the area became flush with new settlers looking to make their fortune. The area surrounding Truckee Lake, now called Donner Lake, and Donner Pass, became major tourist destinations. Ghoulish souvenir hunters would often trek to the location looking for scraps of the camp, and even the occasional human bone that were still lying around. Lansford Hastings, whose guidebook had set the Donner Party on their perilous journey, tried making it as a lawyer in California although he never met with much success. After failing at becoming governor of California, he once proposed a similar plan to seize Arizona that never went anywhere. He later published another guidebook titled The Emigrant's Guide to Brazil. James Fraser Reed settled in San Jose, where he made his own fortune in real estate and gold. His wife Margaret continued to suffer from migraine headaches, despite the warmer climate. Neither one of them liked to speak much about the terrible events of that winter. Their daughter, Virginia Reed, was a little more forthright. When she was fourteen, she wrote a letter to one of her cousins in which she described the horrors they all witnessed. Her family was one of the few who never resorted to cannibalism. In her letter she wrote, Thank the good God we have all got through the only family that did not eat human flesh. She added, Don't let this letter dishearten anybody and never take no cutoffs and hurry along as fast as you can. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. The story of the Donner Party is one of the most engrossing tales I've ever read. There have been a lot of books written about the events of 1846, but two in particular proved invaluable in writing this episode. They were The Indifferent Stars Above by Daniel James Brown and The Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of Manifest Destiny by Michael Wallace. They're both exquisitely written, and help dispel a lot of the myths about the Donner Party that have grown up around the story over the years. I have a few new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Ian, Thomas, and Janet for all your support. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another easy way to support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.